Isaiah 44 is our text for this morning. There comes a time in the life of almost every Christian when God seems to be far away and it feels as if he has been abandoned to himself and to the powers of evil. There comes a time in the life of many whole communities when it seems like the powers of evil, the powers of darkness, have the upper hand and hold sway over whole societies and nations at times. And God's people living through that, struggling with how to deal with that, are given help from the Lord. You know, sometimes we look at what's going on in our lives like that in the real difficult moments when the whole world is turned upside down and, and we can see that the things that are happening are clearly the result of God's chastening hand. And sometimes we look at the things that God is doing and we just cannot trace His purposes at all. This was the situation for the Judah of Isaiah's day who were faced with the prospect of the desolation of their homeland. God had promised to give them this land, and now the empire of Babylon was perched to come and to destroy their land, to destroy the temple, that embodiment of the presence of God in their midst, and to carry away their people captive to a far-off land, a strange land, that would be filled with many different gods, many idols. I mean, they would be immersed in a culture that was shaped by false religion. Much of the culture that they would encounter uh, would be indelibly marked by such things. They, they would be introduced to foods that they had never been introduced before and to a way of preparing those foods, all of which were contrary to the law of God, much of which had actually been sacrificed to the gods they would be surrounded by images and idols, Marduk and Ishtar, Hadad, Nabu, given names actually that incorporated the names of these idol gods into their own names. So much was the effort to reshape the identity of God's people. The brightest of their young people would be educated in the lore and the philosophy of the gods of Babylon. They would be surrounded, as I say, with images, larger than life images, some of them, bright colors, gilded with precious metals, things that would uh, capture the imagination and turn the eye gleaming in the Babylonian sun before them. And it would seem, in the middle of all of this, that these people were really on the wrong side of history, that they were worshiping this God of the long past Exodus, some many centuries before when it seemed now that the real powers were the gods of Assyria and the gods of Babylon. This is the situation that they faced. And in times like those, when God seems far away and the culture seems to be dominated by new spirits and the world is falling apart, the temptations will come inevitably to God's people, on the one hand, to be 
filled with anxiety and fear and despondency as they watch the evil embracing their culture. Or on the other hand, the temptation is to just be absorbed into this new spirit of the age and give in, just to turn to other ideas about God and who God is and what really is important in life and what is true besides what God has revealed. And in those times, what is it that you and I need? What, are, what is it that God's people need? They need exactly what the people of Israel, the people of Judah needed in Isaiah's day. They needed a renewed vision of their God. In Isaiah's words, the words of the Lord through Isaiah, behold your God. And this is where we came to in the beginning of chapter 40, right? In this sort of turning point in the book of Isaiah. And the whole first part of this second half of the book is taken up with theology. Just who is this God? Who is this Jehovah, Yahweh that you serve? And and Isaiah has answered that question in a number of ways already in this second half of the book. In chapter 40, the beginning of the chapter, he said that the Lord God is the incomparable God. I mean, there's nothing at all to compare with Him in heaven or in earth. Then in the end of that chapter, he said that the Lord is the unwearied God, faithfully bringing about, working out His purposes until every single one of them is brought to fruition. In chapter 41, He highlighted the fact that God is the sovereign God, controlling all of the actors in cosmic history. In chapter 42, he begins to unfold that this God, their God, is the saving God who delivers His people out of bondage and slavery and sin and brings them into His own glory by His grace and for His name's sake. And now, here we are in chapters 43 and 44. We find that what Isaiah is highlighting is that the Lord God is the only God. He is God alone. In the face of these powerful cultures around them and the many different deities and images and allegiances that they had, he declares that Yahweh is alone God. We see that right here in our text. Let's begin in verse number 6 of Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His, that is, Israel's Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. Here's what the Lord says. I am the what? I am the first and I am the last. And besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. For I have told you, have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So in the first part of this text for this morning, what we have is an explicit declaration of the singular existence of God. 
He says, I am the first, proceeding from nothing. No other God, or in fact, or any kind of being, brought this God into being. He is the first, and he says, and I am the last. And so if you were to go to the very end of all other being, God would still be there. And so you have a kind of bounded set. I am the first, I am the last, and with regard to the middle, he says, besides me there is no God. This God, Isaiah says, this Lord that we worship, friends, is in a category by himself. There is nothing else that is in all of the universe in any way equal to him in who he is. He is not the first and the last in a kind of succession of gods somehow because of his longevity. He is the first and the last precisely because he is the only, the only God of heaven and earth. And the Babylonians, and of course many, many other civilizations in the world have revered many gods, many lords, many Baals. These gods were viewed as powerful beings that controlled um, the different gods controlling different aspects uh, or, or parts of the created world, forces of nature under the power of a particular god or another. And these gods, these different gods would be stronger in different geographic regions or they encapsulated various aspects of human experience like love or war or health or fertility or whatever it may be. And while not denying the existence of spiritual powers and dominions, sometimes called small g gods, the host of the heavens. The Lord insists, though, there is none of those beings in the category of himself as God alone. Besides me, there is no God. And... You know, it's, a, it's a, sometimes a little bit of a hard thing when we come to a passage in the Bible where the Lord is re denouncing idolatry um, because we, we tend to begin to think that, well, in our culture, uh, we don't have that problem. We don't, we don't have very many carved images around us. There aren't people bowing down to statues around us. But I want to remind you that this is not just a distinction with regard to the beliefs of ancient peoples, there are peoples all around the world today who literally are bowing down to statues. They literally are worshiping God, gods so-called through these idols. But it doesn't have to do just with people of long ago or peoples uh, far away in Africa and Asia. But I want us to remember once again that these passages are in direct contradiction to the polytheism of modern American Mormonism, the Latter-day Saint movement, which teaches that Yahweh, this spirit being who became Jesus, was in fact the spirit child of God the Father Elohim and his heavenly mother, and that he progressed from being a man to eventually becoming a god through exaltation. And by that law of eternal progression, so can any man. One of the church leaders of the Mormon church famously put it this way once, as man now is, God once was, and as God now is, man may be. This is a polytheistic religion, make no doubt. 
And the Lord, in contradiction to all idol worshippers, says, I am the first, I am the last, and there is, besides me, no God. The common rejoinder of the Latter-day Saints with regard to these types of passages, and there are a number, um, is to say, well, read those passages, though, in the context of this world, this planet. There is no God besides me for this planet. But, in fact, God the Father rules over another world. And human beings who progress to celestial exaltation will, in fact, become gods of their own worlds. Or at least that is certainly a possibility. And I want you to look down at verse 8 now. Look at the end of verse 8. And add this in to what he says up there earlier. The end of verse 8. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not what? I know not any. Now, I want to ask you this morning, what does God know? What are the boundaries of God's knowledge? All right? God knows all things with regard to Himself and His creation. All things about what? All things about all things. About our world, about any world. He is the God who is omniscient. And yet, that God who is omniscient says this, Is there any God besides me? I know not any. In all the exhaustive knowledge of the Almighty, He can make this statement, there is no other God. There is none that exists like me. You know, the Mormon church presents itself as just, uh, at least in modern days, it tends to present itself as a, just another Christian denomination. You know, like the Baptists or the Methodists or the Presbyterians or whatever. We're just, we're just another sort of denomination of Christianity. Friends, that couldn't be farther from the truth. It's not another denomination. It is another gospel. When I was a teen, my uh, family, my dad liked to go hunting and took us boys to the northern uh, plateau of the Grand Canyon up there close to the Utah border. We happened to be hunting over, over a weekend there or uh, on a Saturday and, and we weren't able to get back for Sunday church. And so we traveled a short distance up to a little town called Kanab in Utah to go to church at a little small Baptist church there. And uh, we noticed every two things about the town of Kanab, Utah. Number one, everybody in that town was a hunter and wearing orange that Sunday, just about it seemed. And, uh, and just about everybody in the town was a Mormon. But we went to this little church and sang some songs and heard the word and at the end of the service I began to have a conversation with a, a dear older lady by the name of Maxine McElprang. She passed away since then in 2018 but she began to recount to me her testimony of how she grew up Mormon. She was born in Idaho and eventually made her way to Arizona and all of her family, much of her family anyway, were were Latter-day Saints. And all her growing up, she had believed these things until she began to study the Scriptures, invited to a Bible study with a friend. And change didn't happen dramatically or immediately for this woman, but slowly, over a period of many, many months, maybe years, I don't remember, but over a long period, she began to notice something. That what she had learned from the Mormon church was in contradiction to the Word of God, the Scriptures, that they claimed to believe. And she began to make a list, just a simple list, lying down the middle of the paper, and on one side of the paper, what I've been taught, what Mormonism teaches. 
And on the other side of the, Bible, uh, the page, she just wrote Bible verses. And she had this long page going. And finally, after many years, the Lord, uh, or after a, a good long time, the, the Lord uh, brought her out of Mormonism, saved her, and uh, now she handed me, pulled out of her Bible, and she handed me, I still remember it, about a, a half an 8 by 11 size blue sheet of paper folded in half, and that was her list. She had had printed up, and now her job was to give that out and talk to any of her friends that she could listen to. Listen, friends, this is the truth. The Scripture is our only revelation of who God is. And the Lord says, I am God alone. There is no other. And interestingly enough, this verse also refutes uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. A few weeks ago, I spent uh, quite a little bit of time after a service talking to a man who insisted that Jesus was not fully God as Jehovah's Witnesses insist. But the Lord in the Scripture teaches us, I am the first and the last. And what happens when you get to the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 1, remember that John sees this vision of the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus? And in in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus quotes this very passage, I am the first and the last of Himself. The Bible is filled with passages like that, that what is said about Jehovah in the Old Testament is attributed to Jesus in the New. Because there is one God in three persons, our Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Somewhere you should probably write this verse down, right? Isaiah 44, verse 6, as a verse that you can go to again and again to help kind of kill two heresies with one stone, so to speak. There has always, ever, only been, and always, ever, only will be one God. And now in verses 7 and 8, you'll take a look there. He gives testimony in those verses. Take a look. He bears witness to his uniqueness as the only God. Just uh, look at verses 7 and 8 for a moment and think to yourself, what is that testimony that he bears? He is the God who does what? He is the God who predicts the future. right? He declares the end from the beginning. And he issues challenges to these other so-called gods. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. He alone appointed an ancient people, declaring from even before their birth the plans that he had for them. Remember when God came to Abram? And I love the way the Bible says it. He was as good as dead. And his wife, who was beyond childbearing years, and the Lord calls an ancient people from nothing. And he tells ahead of time what he will do with these, his people. For he says, one year from now, and you will bear a son. A son. I mean, laughable. But so it was. He said, I will make of you a mighty nation like the sands of the sea, and so they were. He said, you will be enslaved for 400 years, but after that time I will come, defeat your enemies, and enrich you by their hand and set you free, and it came to pass. He said, I will bring you into a land that I will give you, and I will drive out your enemies and give that land to you, and so he had. And so here, then, is a mark of deity. God, 
and God alone determines the course of history. And by the way, in, determines the course of your own life, my life, all that happens around us. This is the God who exists. And he bears testimony by telling ahead of time what he will do with regard to his people. This, he says, is my testimony as to who I am. And those people, he says, would be his witnesses, their existence, their blessing, the what he had done in answer to all that he had promised would be the witness and the evidence and testimony to his own deity among the nations. And of course, the Bible makes a lot of predictions. What a blessing we have that that God has done that and that he has fulfilled those things. I mean, they're not vague predictions like, you know, you get in the Chinese fortune cookie, you know, something significant will happen today. Like, okay, well, I probably so. If I look back at the end of the day, something I could say sort of significant probably happened. Or one time my son got a fortune cookie that said, you can't have everything, where would you put it? Okay, not those kinds of predictions. Not the kinds of predictions of Nostradamus that are inexplicable and manipulated to mean more or less anything. We're not talking about those kinds of things, but specific predictions that can be verified as a grace of God to encourage our faith. Let me just remind you of some. In connection with what Isaiah uh, said in his ministry, Jeremiah the prophet predicted specifically about the captivity of the people of Israel in Babylon that it would last for a period of how long? You all remember? It would last for 70 years. So how did he do? Well, Nebuchadnezzar attacked Judah initially somewhere around 607 or so B.C. Took a few captives and Daniel, remember, was part of that initial group. He returned some ten years later, took thousands more, as well as the king, into captivity. But the third wave, the biggest wave, came then later on in 586 B.C., another famous date. The temple of God was destroyed and left in ruins. This was the utter decimation of that city. And now, the, according to the testimony of God, the empire of Babylon was eventually conquered and succeeded by what empire? Persia, yes. And then the Persian Empire, ruled over by Cyrus the Great, as it were. Cyrus, uh, who is also named, in fact, in this book of Isaiah. Cyrus sent out the decree allowing the Jews to return in 539 B.C., right around 70 years after that first attack. And the temple was rebuilt. It was dedicated in 516 B.C., again, 70 years after it was destroyed. It's almost like he got it right on two counts. The Lord does this again and again through the Scripture, admonishing the idols of the world. Who else controls all of human history for the good of his people like I do? I am God and God alone. Or consider the prophecies of Daniel. Stunning, actually, descriptions of four successive world empires, Babylon and Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and followed by Rome. And, and it's just amazing. You read these visions, and, and he sees the empire of Greece as a goat with one great leader horn. And of course, we know from history, a great leader of the Greek empire, his, he was great, right? His name was Alexander called the Great. 
In fact, the historian Josephus even records that the scroll of Daniel was produced and shown to Alexander the Great, and he was encouraged that God was going to give him victory over Persia. In fact, which did happen, just as the scriptures predicted. Daniel further foresaw that that great horn would be broken, and according to Daniel chapter 11, verse 22, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And of course, it turned out that after Alexander's death, the empire was divided into four kingdoms, ruled over by his four generals, Ptolemy, Cassander, Seleucus, and Antigones. Never as great, but continuing on for a number of years, just as Daniel had predicted. Further chapters in Daniel go on to actually give an even more detailed prophecy of the events that would follow the breakup of, of Alexander's empire. Eventually, he describes in stunning detail the reign of Antiochus IV, an infamous ruler of the Greek Seleucid Empire. Amazing. The Lord speaking all through the halls of history of exactly what he will do for the good of his people. Why? Because he alone is God. And he bears that testimony. They are his witnesses. Now the skeptics, usual complaint about these things, you know, when, when you see predictions like this that are very specific and verifiable, the skeptic will look at it and say, well, of course, there's no way that could have been what? Prophecy that had to have been, have been written after the fact. And so, of course, the, the project of faithfully dating the books of the scripture is an important task. But Antiochus didn't, didn't begin his reign until 175 BC, 175 years before Christ. And Daniel, the book of Daniel, is included in something called the Septuagint which is the Greek translation you know, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, which was done, and in fact we have manuscript evidence of the Septuagint from the 2nd century B.C., from two, the 200s B.C., at least 25 years before some of these predictions even happened. And of course Daniel was written earlier, and if that's not amazing enough, Daniel goes on to predict 77s, he says, 77s, referring to the land Sabbaths of Israel every seven years. Seventy-sevens are decreed for the people. Add that up, 483 years. Beginning, he says, with the command to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem after its destruction. And in the middle of that final seven, the Messiah, he says, will be cut off. So, what actually happened? Well, the most explicit command about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem was issued by Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. And 69 sevens from there, 483 years from that date, if you're doing all the math, ends you up, you know, depending on calendar changes and, and different dating problems, ends you up right around A.D. 26 to 30, which is, guess what? The beginning of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the middle of Daniel's final week, of years, about three and a half years into Jesus' ministry, he was, as Isaiah says, cut off from the land of the living. And Daniel is beyond dispute a part of the Holy Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, long before the time of Christ. In fact, Jesus makes reference to another prediction of Daniel, the destruction of the temple 
during the time of Rome. Jesus says, in his day, all of these things will happen in this generation. And when you see these things that Daniel prophesied, he says, run for the hills, because God is about to bring his judgment to fall. And you know what? The Greek historian Eusebius says that's exactly what happened when God brought his judgment again upon that people in 70 AD. And you know, you can just take this kind of thing and just go on and on. The Bible is full of these kinds of testimonies of God sovereignly controlling all of history for the good of his people and sometimes even announcing ahead of time what he will do for them and they stand as his witnesses. Unlike Bel and Zeus and Apollo, he is the God who declares what is to come and what will happen. He is God alone. Now, what's the purpose of that though? I mean, what is why is Isaiah emphasizing that he alone is God. What does God want them to take from that? What's the application of that? And and we don't have to wonder about that question because the answer is for us right in the text in verse number 8. Fear not, he says. Right? Fear not, nor be afraid. I mean, their world... In the time of Isaiah, looking ahead to the destruction that was about to come, their world was falling apart. Their land would be devastated. Their nation was going to be dispersed. The people who would read this in subsequent generations under the Babylonian captivity would be overwhelmed by this all-powerful force, it seemed, the power of the Babylonian Empire. But the Lord said to them, Listen, don't worry. I told you all this would happen. Remember? I declared it long ago, and I also predicted that I would bring you back into the land again. Fear not. I am God. I am the only God. There is no rival. But of course, that fact is disputed by the nations, that he is the only God. And in the course of the conquest of Jerusalem, as they were brought down the streets into the city of Babylon, they would be surrounded by these images. These so-called gods whose power seemed to be the victorious power. And so in verses 9 to 20 now, the second half of our text, Isaiah undertakes an ironic demonstration of the futility of idols. Verse 9. All who fashion idols are, what? Nothing. And the things that they delight in, the idols themselves, do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashion, who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. This is in contrast to Israel that was formed or fashioned by God Himself. In the end of verse 11, let them all assemble. Let them stand forth, these nations and their gods. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. In contrast to Israel, to whom He said, Fear not, those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. To the idol worshippers, He says, They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Now, in our culture, idols are just as plentiful as they were in Babylon. Maybe they're not usually carved out of wood or stone or gilded with precious metals, but we worship and serve worldly ideas and philosophies that demand allegiance. 
Paul in the book of Colossians says that these worldly philosophies are demon-inspired. Right? These aren't. This is not just a human thing. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians that even the blocks of wood and stone have demonic powers behind them. These ideas and philosophies that are made into gods become so powerful that to stand against these ideas or philosophies in that kind of culture becomes like desecrating somebody's idols, like desecrating their gods. And that's the way it feels sometimes, isn't it? When certain godless ideas become enshrined, sacred, really sacred, it is not, <laughs> there is no secular, secularity anywhere in the world. Everything and everyone is religious. And if God is taken off the throne, some other God will be put in its place. Or we idolize personalities because of their, what, prowess in sport or entertainment or popularity and culture. We imitate those people even to our own spiritual blinding. They have hordes of followers online who are devoted to them. Fanatics, fans, in devotion to their idols. Even calling them idols. And Psalm 115 reminds us that you become like what you worship. And so they are the blind who end up leading the blind. Or we worship activities and conditions which become all-consuming to us. The kind of all-consuming devotion that idols, gods demand, where we believe that these conditions and these activities are the only things that can, can, can do for us. That they can do for us what only God can do for us. Or we enshrine even possessions, even things, And you begin to see people around you literally making sacrifices in order to get those things just as surely as the Hindus sacrifice to their idols. And the rest of the text, Isaiah goes on to just demonstrate the futility of the idols. Verse 12, the ironsmith, the worker of iron, takes his cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint in his labors. Verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. And he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Verse 14, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it, and then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes his bread, and also he makes a god out of it and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, the other, and and over that half he eats meat, and he roasts it and is satisfied, and also he warms himself. And he says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And with the rest of it, He makes it into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Verse 18, the Lord says, They know not 
nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. Look at this next line. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand as he holds his God? Let me point out very, very quickly six realities that Isaiah highlights here about the futility of idolatry. Number one, a man labors to sustain his, a man's labors to sustain his idolatry exhaust rather than strengthen. Right? Verse 12. Verse 12, you see what he said? He's talking about this ironsmith who's working all day over the hot coals to fashion this iron god, and he even goes without food and water, even to the point of exhaustion to make this god, right? And at the end of the day, the god hasn't supplied for him. He's labored for this god. He has given himself into something that exhausts him rather than strengthens him. That's what idols do. That's exactly what idols do. Many years ago, I ministered to a very smart young man who um, was very bright, had a great future ahead of him, but he gave himself over to an idol of self and sin and lust and pornography and really became in bondage to his own idol. And that idol had such a hold of this man that he would sometimes go all night, literally without sleeping, just giving himself over to this idol that exhausted him. I remember one time driving down to his apartment and um, going in after meeting his roommate, knocking on his door. No one came knocking on his door, and finally he came out and just looking absolutely haggard and eyes sunken in and just like he hadn't eaten or slept for who knows how long. Sustaining his idolatry had robbed him of life. And that's what idols do, really, whether visibly like that or not. Sin takes, but it doesn't give. Number two, Isaiah says that an idol reflects the image of the creature rather than the creator, right? Verse 13, what does the man do when he makes this idol? He shapes it into the figure of a man. He gives it the beauty of a man. right? I mean, that's the best we can do. Sometimes it's just a beast or even a creeping thing. But he shapes it into human form. What kind of man does he shape this idol into? Well, a fallen one. And in the stories, of course, all of the gods have the foolishness of human beings, don't they? You read these stories of the gods of the ancients. He shapes it into the image of fallen man. And that really is, in in one way, a good definition of what idolatry is. Idolatry is men shaping God into their own image of what they want Him to be, like themselves, really. And then, as they worship that image, they become like the God that, more and more, like the God that they worship. So that there becomes a kind of spiritual echo chamber of depravity and they give themselves over to idolatry. It is, in fact, only looking to Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God in which, by which we are 
transformed from one degree of glory into the image of God, renewed, made new in the image for which and to which we were created. One writer put it this way, what you revere, you resemble, either for your ruin or for your restoration. That's what gods do. Isaiah says that men have shaped these gods in their own likeness. Verse number 3, the idols of the world are all dependent things. Right? If you look at verse 14, isn't that what he's saying? He makes note, Isaiah makes specific note, that the cedar used to make this idol was planted by the man. And in fact, it was watered by the rain from heaven, from God. In fact, everything in the world, even those things that men idolize, ultimately have their being from the Lord. Why would we be so foolish as to worship and give our allegiance to something that is not ultimate, but is passing away? Number four, he says, the material of the idol was actually, you know, the wood that he made the idol from, was actually man's provision, not man's provider. He says the wood was given to, to what? To, to burn, to, to warm himself by the fire, to cook his food. God put these things in the world. This is the gracious provision of God. But then he takes that provision, the rest of that tree, and he makes it into a God. And in a way, that's what idolatry is as well. It is looking to what God has provided as if it is the provider. Or looking to what he has given as a gracious gift and worshiping that as if it's the giver of everything that you need and everything that you desire. And people make sacrifices to get stuff and they should only make for the Creator. And finally, he points out in these verses that the worship of idols is in fact a divine judgment of delusion. Verses 18 and 19. Right? God has given these idol worshipers over to delusion. So, so if you ask yourself, you know, why doesn't, why doesn't the guy... You know, look at this idol that he spent this time making that he sets on the shelf and tries to make sure it doesn't topple over, right? He has to, he has to wedge a little piece of paper under the side so it doesn't, so his god doesn't fall on its face. Why, why this tree that he just used to cook his food and now he's bowing down to it? What, what foolishness is that? How can he not see that, right? And the answer is that the Lord is given a delusion. Why does he bow to wood? Why does he live in fear of ivory? Why does he put food in front of these precious metals? Because God has shut their eyes so they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. This is what the Lord does. Now, friends, listen. God punishes blindness with blindness. And I want to just tell you, listen. If by the mercy of God, you can see a little bit, that's grace. That's nothing but grace. And you ought to get on your knees every day and say, God, please keep me from idols that I would not lose my ability to see what's true, what's real, what is satisfying, what is right. Why was Israel tempted in this moment with regard to idols? Well, I think it's because their world as they knew it was falling apart. They were fearful. They were anxious afflicted by a powerful conquering ruler, Babylon, and their gods that seem to be prospering. And what is God's answer in order to sustain them? The Lord says, listen, don't forget, I told you that I was going to do this. I told you from long ago. 
This is not a sign of God's weakness, but of his chastening. I predicted, he says, your captivity, and I also predicted your ultimate deliverance for all who wait on me. And our culture, listen, our culture may well become so filled with idols of whatever sort, they, those idols become may become in our culture, in our culture, so prevalent and so powerful that God seems far away, that evil seems like it's in charge, and we're tempted to be anxious, and we're tempted to be despondent. And the Lord has put this testimony in here for us to remember at that time. There is only one God. There's only one, and He has warned us ahead of time. Listen, He says to us, literally, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It is not out of control. God has declared that this should be. And so to you today, listen friend, He says to you through this text, fear not. Do not be afraid for have I not from of old declared it? Listen, even if Satan, bound for a thousand years from deceiving the nations, was loosed for a little season to make war on the people of God, God has declared it. He's also declared his ultimate demise. So don't give yourselves up to the gods of this world, to their vanity, to their futility. All of that is bound to pass away because there is one God and one God alone. And Whether in the world at large around us or our culture or maybe in your own life, it seems like your whole world is shaking. Friends, remember this. The Lord says, fear not. I am the first I am the last, and besides me there is what? No God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for strengthening our faith today through this Word, for bearing testimony so eloquently as You have worked for the good of Your people. We do rejoice in these things. We do pray that You would keep us from fear and despondency about the world around us, and that You would deliver us from idols in our own hearts making idols out of all kinds of things, Lord. Give us grace to rely upon You and trust You, not to turn to the world, for the world is passing away. Deliver us, O Lord, we pray. And we would ask You now earnestly to open our eyes to deliver us from the delusions of our own natural hearts, from the false promises of sin. Deliver us, Lord, we pray. Anchor us in your eternal existence, we ask in Jesus' name.